The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. It's a joy. It's a joy to be here with you in January. For the people, not the weather. Um, some people here at the North Campus, I feel like I know really well, even though it's, it's been a while. Um, but I think there's probably a lot of people who have no real idea who I am. My name's Kyle, and um, on the screen is a picture of my family. Uh, my wife, Courtney, she goes by Coco now um, because they can't pronounce Courtney where we lived for a long time. Uh, we're global partners, and we've been sent from uh, Bethlehem since 2008. For the last 11 years, we've lived in Southeast Asia uh, doing gospel work. I worked as a pastor, a seminary professor, a mentor, a church planter, and a student. And part of my preparation for that included me attending uh, the Bethlehem Institute back in 2003 and finishing in 2006. I then went to Gordon-Conwell and got my MDiv, and then we sort of went overseas. Um, back in the time when we lived here in Minneapolis, um, I was a director of youth. I actually held um, John Nowlin's position before him, and I have many fond memories of teaching Sunday school with Tim Johnson. We went through the Book of Acts. Um, I remember having airsoft gun battles with teenage boys in this building when it was still under construction. There was just girders, and we'd, we'd play in the back. Now as an adult in leadership positions, I think, oh, what about the insurance? You know, what were we doing? But we, we, we had a lot of fun. Our three years of intertwining our lives with this church family left a huge impact on us. My oldest son was born at Abbott Northwestern, and he took his first steps in our apartment on 10th and Franklin in the Phillips neighborhood where we lived across the street from John Erickson. And I just want to say we're so thankful for the continued support, prayers, and encouragement from this congregation. We now live in Orlando, Florida. Um, we continue as global partners, and we are continuing a lot of work both in the States and overseas to continue to be agents of reconciliation and peace. And I'd like to just say I find it so personally encouraging um, to see John still here. And 15 years, right? I think I read that in the start. Wow. I mean, maybe not everybody can appreciate that. You know the phrase like uh, uh, one year in a dog's year is, is seven years in a, in a uh, human's years. Well, I think one year in a youth pastor's life is 15 years in a regular pastor's life. So the fact that John is still here, he's a great-great-grandfather in the youth pastor faith. And I uh, just honor you, John, and I'm really thankful for you. I was initially a bit intimidated to preach at Bethlehem. When I was a student here, I just never figured I would ever have an opportunity giving the capability of all the staff and people connected to the church. So I was relieved that this opportunity would come to speak on an issue that was very calming, edifying, 
on which nobody disagrees, <laughs> and in a climate in which there's no added tension. Um, I'm glad you've recognized that was a joke. Um, <laughs> this, this issue obviously, I think, needs to be handled with great care um, and thoughtfulness. And this morning, my aim is really not to change the world or to change the way everybody looks at things. I just want to be a part of looking at the Word together with you and just hopefully take one step in the process of transformation. My aim is that we could take a step to become more like the embodiment of love, joy, peace. Not that we would be people that act like it, but that we would be living, breathing, walking pictures of what love is and the fruit of the Spirit. It's not even been a year since the death of George Floyd. We've had the elections in November, had the special election in Georgia. We had the storming of the Capitol. And the national and political discourse have added a lot of emotional intensity to this issue. You know, we came back to the U.S. about a year and a half ago due to medical reasons. We, we couldn't continue living in Southeast Asia um, as we wish we could have. And um, things seem more intense to me here, um, being back in the States. And, you know, I don't have a good gauge to judge it, but it, it seems to be true. And I'd like to begin this message by saying um, how thankful I am for the change in how the issue is framed. I remember back when we were here that this January message on MLK Weekend was entitled Racial Harmony. And this past, uh, in the fall, Stephen asked me if I would speak about ethnic harmony. And if I needed to preach on racial harmony, I would really do my best. Um, but it, it's just not something I have a lot of practical experience in. And like many of you, I'm learning, I'm trying to read more about people who are clinging to their rights, I'm trying to learn more about our nation's history and even the term race. But framing this issue into the concept or framework of ethnic harmony for me has just moved the whole discussion into a different key. And I'd like to approach our topic around the idea of the ethne or the people the peoples and the people groups. It's more comfortable for me, and it's something I have some life experience on. And I um, <clears throat> also want to just plug Andy Nacelli's workshop on uh, ethnic harmony. Stephen passed those along to me. I read through that, and there's just incredibly fantastic material in there, and um, it looked really good. I wish I, wish I could take it again. Um, so before we jump into the text, let's, let's pray. Lord, we need you, as we have heard. Thank you for those babies that we saw dedicated and for the life that they're coming into. Lord, would they and all of us continue to grow and be formed to become more like our Lord Jesus. Help me this morning to preach clearly, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to be embodied fruits of the Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have just heard uh, the story read from John's Gospel and Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. She's not given a name. It's surprising, I think, what we learn about her, even while she remains somewhat of a stranger without a name. 
We know that she was a local from Samaria, verse 7. We learn that she has no husband in verse 17. We know that she's had six partners and may be living with a man who's not her husband, verse 18. We know she has an interest in spiritual matters, verse 19. We know that she hears a clear and strong spiritual message from Jesus that addresses both her spoken question and points her to a deeper truth. It's in verses 22 through 24. We know that the disciples are surprised to find Jesus talking with her, but they don't mention it. Verse 27. We know that she broadly shares the message of Christ in her town in verse 28, and we infer that she is persuasive since the entire town came out to see him in verse 30. Before we go to this text in a deeper way, I just want to suggest that this is a powerful example of inter-ethnic interaction from Jesus. This will have application for us on the topic of ethnic harmony. And this story is an example of interacting with a stranger. I think it's a lesson we need ever before us because we're all vulnerable on a key front. We need to be deeply transformed on this issue because we are all vulnerable to fear. There is a deep connection between fear and enmity of all kinds, including ethnic enmity. This morning, I'm going to start out by looking at more of a biblical theology of the stranger, and I will look at it in three points. The first point is that the people of God should include the stranger. The second point is asking the question, who is the stranger? And the third point is that strangers should become family. It's unsurprising, given Israel's history, that we find explicit teaching in the Bible related to strangers. The sermon's called Loving the Stranger because I think that this is a key way for us to move toward ethnic harmony and to overcome fear. Going back to the Pentateuch, we see a stream of verses mentioning the stranger and how the people of Israel were to relate to them. We find a clear message of inclusivity and hospitality. In Leviticus 19.33, it says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land... You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Israel should have empathy for the position of the stranger, given that she experienced it. She dealt with the prejudice and stares and hatred in Egypt. This is beautifully portrayed in the book of Ruth. Naomi welcomes Ruth back into her native land after the death of her husband and sons. Ruth enters society as a stranger, and yet she's welcomed in. She gains another husband through her marriage to Boaz and becomes part of the family, of the lineage of Christ. Not only are strangers meant to be welcomed into the community, but they partake in worship. Numbers 15, 14, we read, 
And if the stranger is sojourning with you, or if anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a food offering with the pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be before you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. It's amazing the level of welcome anticipated here in Israel's corporate worship. There were not two systems and two laws. The stranger could be welcomed in completely. My perspective on experiences like this and majority-minority dynamics just changed after living in Indonesia. This is my first real experience being a minority, albeit a privileged one. To learn the language well, we attended language school. We went and lived uh, in a slum, uh, and we brought our two kids there who were 18 months old and two years old, and we walked through and experienced life being a minority. You may notice that I'm tall. I'm six feet, six inches tall. I'm white. This is very different if you've never been to Indonesia. This is very different than most of the Asian people who are short by comparison to me and are varying shades of brown. Wherever I went, people would stare at me. On multiple occasions, I would notice teenage girls surreptitiously taking selfies or photos and trying to capture me in the background. <laughs> a little bit of a game. Began to understand the language and would hear anytime on an elevator people talking about me. Wow. Usually kids would be like, which means tall. Like, that guy's really tall. And the parents would be like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> People wanted to take pictures with me. This is weird. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a frequent occurrence. And um, some people uh, here have, have actually visited Indonesian places like this where people want to take a picture. It's, it's cool, you know. Some really tall white guy. Well, obviously, you want to take a picture with him. You know, the attention was mostly positive. Mostly positive. But sometimes I felt like a zoo animal. It's hard to be a stranger. It's hard to be an outsider. And it's hard to be a minority. Even if it was positive and not always negative, sometimes it was negative, it was overwhelming. So I started to gain fluency and we started making friends. That really started to change what life felt like. A lot of people welcomed us in and befriended us. Both Christians and Muslims. And the simple act of just being welcomed and offered hospitality meant, it meant so much. And it boosted our, our heavy hearts and helped us feel like, wow, okay, maybe we can, maybe we can make it here. Maybe we don't have to go home. Maybe, maybe we'll find a way to be able to survive. 
Having been a stranger and experiencing being welcomed into Indonesian churches as a brother helped me to see the power of these texts in the Old Testament. And it's given me a new perspective on immigrants and minorities who arrive in the U.S. These people are doing something difficult. They're often lonely. And they feel what it's like to be an outsider. These are real people with real feelings, made in the image of God. And we can do our part to welcome the stranger, just as Jesus welcomed and engaged the woman at the well. So, who is the stranger? Like, it's easy to think of a stranger as someone who doesn't look like you, someone who speaks a different language, they eat different food, they wear different clothes, but this really is just a surface level peak. When we move beyond the physical appearance and we get, you know, right down to it, we are all strangers to each other. No one really knows what anyone else is thinking. Haven't you ever been surprised? You tell a joke, think your friend's going to laugh, but then they're mad at you? Like, whoa, did not expect that coming. If you did, you wouldn't have told the joke, right? If you, uh, uh, it's easy to think, because sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we know what other people are thinking. But what we're actually doing is we're just guessing. We're guessing, based off of the stories that are in our own heads, what stories and narratives are happening in somebody else's head. And then we interact with each other like that. That's, that's how it works. We have varying degrees of ability to guess what's happening, and, and sometimes you can guess, even your spouse, maybe you know your spouse really well, you can guess what they're thinking. Other times, it's a big surprise, right? When you barely know someone, you have no idea the stories that are playing in their mind. We don't know. Like we, we live off of our shared imagination, which is what allows us to predict that. But when you take that away, like we experience living overseas, you realize how much you're, you're, you're left to just guess and how much you really don't know, which highlights how little we do know and how surprising it is that we can make accurate guesses or tell jokes that people think are funny or know what's going on in our spouse's mind. But at a deeper level, we are strangers to each other. How much more when the ethnic and language differences change? Recognizing this can help us by leading us to curiosity and humility about our assumptions. Uh, curiosity and humility are powerful weapons to combat fear in fear of the other or fear of the stranger. The strangers in our lives, both those who are culturally near and culturally far, should be the recipients of our compassion, love, and expressions of the love of God. When we are interacting with someone we don't know well or someone who's different than us, it's their very difference that qualifies them as someone deserving of attention and hospitality. We read in Hebrews 13, 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We don't want to miss out on what strangers might be able to teach us or bless us with. 
And not only that, but we've been commissioned to give attention to the stranger who's often vulnerable. In Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25, we get this summary after this story. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? He responds, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. In order to move toward the stranger, we really have to overcome our fears. Being curious is one way to try to do that. I know it's hard. It's hard. It's especially difficult in a media environment that's making money off of producing fear of the other, promoting stranger danger, and focused on protecting what is ours. I, I get it. I used to be, and oftentimes still am, intimidated of having conversations with Muslims that are just passionate about their faith. I felt, begin to feel okay about talking with my neighbors and people who, you know, kind of didn't seem to care or maybe would be uh, what we would term here casual Christians, but in the Muslim faith. Um, And I wasn't excited once to go talk to a head imam in a local mosque, but I was given a challenge to go into this large mosque, talk to the head imam, and try to talk to them about Jesus. Just go and ask them um, about what their faith, about what their holy book teaches on Jesus. Wow, okay. Took some doing. Found a friend. Everything's easier with a friend, right? Went with a friend, and we went into the mosque. We asked to speak to the head imam and asked if we could ask him some questions. So they kind of found him, and they got him, and they brought him to us. And this was a guy who's all dressed in white robes, he didn't look very old, maybe like in his 40s, big beard, you know. And he had a big um, brown spot on his forehead right here, which um, some of you know, maybe some of you don't. Um, it was a sign of his devotion. So in his particular Islamic tradition, you know, when they do the prayers, um, they would place a rock on the ground, and in the midst of their prayers in Sholat, they would place their forehead on the rock, and then back up. And that happens multiple times during one prayer. Pray five times a day, every day of the year. Eventually, you develop a callus like that. So this was a sign of his devotion. And just looking at him, you know, wow, this guy is dedicated. Even if, like, in your, in your skeptical view, you think, oh, he's not praying, but he's rubbing a rock on his forehead to build up a callus or something. Like, that's still dedication, We sat down to talk with him and to ask about his understanding of Jesus. Our goal wasn't to try to convert them, but to just genuinely, with curiosity, just just try to understand their perspective on Jesus. And us would try to just lift him up. Just gently lift him up. Anytime they said something positive, like, wow, that's amazing. This seems like a cool guy. And what started off as a difficult assignment turned into a six-hour-long conversation well into the night. 
our conversation was broken up when the call to prayer would go off, and he would say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, we have to pray. We were like, okay, well, wh- what should we do? <laughs> they, okay, go stand in the back, and it's fine. Um, we'll, we'll do our prayers, and then we can continue our conversation. Please don't leave. We want to keep talking. Like, okay. So this happened three times, because we went there in the afternoon, and there are sort of three calls to prayer moving towards dusk and sunset. And we had a rich conversation. They fed us dinner. And I was surprised how open they were. I was surprised at what they were sharing about Jesus. I enjoyed, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Oh, it was so fun. I really enjoyed that conversation. He taught me a lot about how his tradition looks at Jesus. He was surprised some of the questions that we had. And he was surprised at some of the things that were in the Quran. Our curiosity and openness led to his curiosity and openness. And by the end of the night, he said goodbye to us and he gave us hugs. He, had, he was crying. He had tears in his eyes. He's saying, you know what? You, you came in to us. We should have been out in the streets coming to find you. And yet here you are coming to us. Jesus overcame the awkwardness that the disciples didn't even want to talk about with the woman at the well. That really hit me anew as I was reading this verse and looking at it. They, 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 they noticed, surprised, he was talking to a Samaritan woman, but they didn't mention it to her or, or to him. Facing this issue of fear is something that's helped me to develop relationships with Muslim leaders, some of whom I would call friends. It's led to some opportunities to be a part of collaborative working groups, even at a high level, doing some consulting and engaging with some global imams and leaders with the U.S. State Department to address things like religious freedom and reducing persecution and the opportunity for everyone to practice their faith, even in restricted access countries. Strangers become family. We were all strangers at one time before God and all fellow sojourners in this life. Just as we may have been strangers to each other and maybe several generations back would have had some difficulty between Swedish German, Polish, Irish. We've been made family. We read in Ephesians 2, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In Ephesians here, he's talking about integrating the Jews and the Gentiles. And a few verses later in Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're all strangers and sojourners in this world. And for those who've placed their hope in Christ, we have become family and united in him. In many ways, we become like relatives who are united through marriage. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The gospel not only builds bridges, 
but it is a hammer meant to destroy and break down walls. Not only should we show hospitality to the stranger, not only should we reach out to the stranger and be curious about them, but we should also hope and pray that these strangers become part of our family. Part of the family of God. And this is not a natural impulse. When you see someone different from you and you begin to have a feeling of fear rise up in you, maybe you want to admit it, maybe you don't want to admit it, but I think that happens to everybody. Typically, you want to get away, not invite them into your living room and to become a part of your family. But there are rich blessings to welcoming in new members. Diversity brings a richness that maybe we didn't have before. In Indonesia, for a season, I was a pastor of an international church, and half of the church was Indonesian, and half of the church was various expats from eight to ten different countries, depending on the weekend. And Coco and I led a small group of Indonesian young people. Um, It was a discipleship group in our home, and we met, you know, several times a month. And over time, we started to hear more and more about their lives when we heard more and more stories of trauma. Many had been sent away from their nuclear families to go live with relatives because they could provide for them and give them an education, offer them a better future. We heard about abusive situations where the entire extended family would sleep on the floor in the same room, and this led to experiences of exploitation. We heard about pain and loss. And hearing those stories, knowing more about the stories and the tapes that were playing in their own head, began to change the way that I responded to things that they did that frustrated me. Knowing more of their stories renewed compassion and helped me open up to see how some of the anger and the backbiting and the gossiping and the fighting, and that that person's bad, and this person's good, and I won't sit by that person, and I'm not going to talk to her. I started to see how a lot of these were rooted in a deep fear of abandonment, in a deep desire to just have secure friendships. I began to appreciate what some have called strange virtues. Cross-cultural ethics uh, can be complicated. But being immersed in this uh, context helped me appreciate the diversity and to see how different approaches to life can address blind spots that I have. It's common for Christian Westerners in Indonesia to be frustrated with what is perceived to be dishonesty. It can be hard to get a clear verbal answer when Indonesians are concerned that they might hurt your feelings or cause tension or conflict. Because disagreements happen all over the world, they have developed different ways of handling them, but they rarely include direct confrontation. My perception of what used to appear as disobedience of something like Matthew 18 and avoiding conflict changed over time. This is part of the dynamics of of strange virtues. 
we all have invisible rankings in our head of, of, of the rules. Telling the truth is more important than relationships. Um, or uh, murder is, uh, it's more important not to murder than to lie to somebody, right? So we have rankings. We don't put every ethical kind of demand on the same level. And strange virtues, that framework helps to recognize that other people have a different ranking. But more often than not, what I was intent, tempted to call wrong could be looked at as a strange virtue. My ranking of truth-telling over protecting the relationship or someone's shame was very different from my Indonesian friends and colleagues. They would address these issues indirectly. They would value relationships and they would protect that zealously. And being immersed in this for a period of time, for a long period of time, took me a long time actually, helped me begin to see the value of protecting the relationships. And you still deal with the issues, but it's indirectly instead of directly. In fact, I think over time, I have internally adjusted my own rankings to value relationships as much as I value truth. You can learn from new family members. What might initially seem wrong could eventually be revealed as a strange virtue. And they're not doing something that's wrong so much as having a different ranking in their own minds of a priority of what's right. Indonesian brothers and sisters would just be aghast at how ungodly the Westerners in our church could be. How could they be so cruel? How could they be so mean? How could they be so divisive? I'm like, whoa, what is going on? The Westerners would be talking to someone about an issue, and they would be talking about it directly, explicitly, in the open, in front of other people. And they agreed that, you know, these are problems and issues to be dealt with, but for the love of Pete, can't we still love each other? Aren't we supposed to be instruments of love? But you know what? That was a positive, helpful critique for me to begin to appreciate. That was a blind spot that I had. And I've come to appreciate the elevation of the importance of relationships and protecting our harmony together. Wow, we don't avoid issues, but try to deal with them in a way that kind of turns the temperature from a boil down to a simmer. The woman at the well was an unknown evangelistic force that Jesus unleashed through loving her and reaching out. Moving towards um, application, I'm, I'm in a PhD program in Islam and political philosophy, so I just thought I wanted to offer a, a brief thought on current discussions on race, gender, and identity politics from some of the philosophical streams that could be lumped together as critical theory. The recent headwaters for this originate with Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. And don't worry, this is not a lecture on philosophy, um, so I won't get into it too deeply, but it's really important to know where these streams come from. 
So often the headwaters of intellectual traditions define the direction for where the streams go, and pulling water from those streams has consequences. These various philosophers' writings on things like the will to power, desire and the unconscious, and the clash between the wealthy and the worker have made a huge impact on the thought life of American society, just broadly speaking. Modern critical theory typified in the extended writing project of Michel Foucault, most people have never heard of, but has, has really penetrated a diverse number of fields like post-structuralism, psychotherapy, feminism, gender studies, and post-colonial criticism. This whole complex of critical theory is deeply embedded in discussions on race. And there is some truth to their critiques. Colonizers around the world, Indonesia has been colonized and there are deep memories of that. Colonizers exploited new lands with an attitude that planting a flag means that you own the land. Men have used their strength to hurt and exploit women. Those with wealth have used others as a means to an end and valued the bottom line over creation care and protecting the vulnerable. White people have caused pain in marginalized black voices. Those are some positives of that stream of thinking. And yet, the entire framework of suspicion, suspicion towards power, suspicion towards wealth, suspicion towards gender, has dire consequences. It defines all thought and action in the framework of power for good and for ill. And when you look at things suspiciously, you can see things that aren't there. It doesn't provide an environment for trust and relationships to grow. This is where we need to move toward a vision of the kingdom of God and the integration of a new family. In our upside-down kingdom, it's not about power, but it's about servanthood. We should follow our model of Christ, the one with ultimate power who emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. In him, we have the resources to overcome fear and to welcome the stranger. It's really hard to be afraid when you are deeply loved to the core of who you are. If we look again at this encounter in John's Gospel, we see that Jesus engages a stranger, a powerful male reaching out to a Samaritan woman. Jesus creatively provokes curiosity and points to a deeper way. And it is the diversity between the two people that leads to this revelation of the proper place of worship. We read in verses 23 through 26, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then we have the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, clear as day. And this precious insight about God and about the entire nature of worship came out of a conversation that Jesus had with a stranger. He reached out to, to her, 
He showed hospitality. He overcame social stigma and ignored the power difference. He was curious about her, and he met her where she was at. He welcomed her in and invited her to be part of the family, which resulted in salvation and revelation. And she went and spread that to everybody, and the whole village came out to see what had happened. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your example. Thank you for your living embodiment of love. Help us to overcome fear. Be our guide to love the stranger. Work in me, work in all of us to expose ways that we have been merely following along with the status quo. Kindle anew curiosity in our hearts to learn about our neighbors, to welcome the stranger, to overcome fear, and to actively seek to bring in new members of the family of God. Jesus, be our guide. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.